Church, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, beginning specifically this morning in verse 16. What a powerful, powerful witness of the wonderful gifts. I just want to say again to our choir and to our orchestra here, to, to Linda and to, to Brent, thank you for leading us so beautifully. John, thank you for your leadership for three services. I've been able to hear what you have just experienced for the first time, and it just gets better every time. I, you're not going to be able to say that about my sermon, though. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> the choir gets better with time. They, I, I, feel, I feel like I need to preach just a whole other message. Open with me to the book of Leviticus. For the, for the sake of the choir who has heard this two times already. So I'm thankful that maybe you're hearing it for the first time here. And so Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. I, I wonder, for those of you that cook, and I know not everybody is a chef in your home, but uh, for those of you that cook, I, I wonder for you just to do a little thought experiment with me here and do a little bit of, of uh, wandering around your kitchen. How many cookbooks do you think you have? Oh, the, murmuring, the, the murmuring of the crowd here. So uh, if you have one, raise your hand. For the, everybody's got one cookbook. For those of you that have more than five cookbooks, raise your hand right here. Yeah? More than 10 cookbooks? 20 cookbooks. 20? 20? 195. No, we're not going to continue down this road here. All of us, all of us have cookbooks. If you, if you cook, if you're a chef, if you're working in the kitchen, you have got cookbooks. Some of them you've purchased. Some of them have been handed down to you. We have all of our church, all of our churches, I, I think, uh, maybe not all of them, the majority of the churches that we have served with, they all have cookbooks. And so we've got a Dawson cookbook, and we have a First Baptist Clinton cookbook. And so we can go back and see, you know, sweet, sweet Miss Linda, who's with the Lord in heaven, but her grits uh, recipe is, is amazing. And so, you know, we have those kinds of, of memories. I tell you, we have a lot of cookbooks at our house, but the one source of recipes that is the prized possession is when Daniel and I got married, her mother uh, handed us a box that was filled with these three-by-five note cards, and she had written out sort of the holy grail of her uh, family's recipes that were just passed down orally from one generation to the next. And so we have that. So if there's a fire at our house, I get the kids out, I get Danielle out, and I'm going back in for the holy grail of those recipes there. They are really good. I'm not exaggerating this here. So uh, any cook knows the importance of the right ingredients. Any cook knows that the right ingredients and the right amounts will come to a delicious recipe. Now, Paul, I have no idea about his culinary skills, but in many ways, Galatians chapter 5 in this section is an opportunity for us to enter into two recipes, two sets of ingredients, 15 ingredients when put together are going to describe for us the recipe of the works of the flesh, non-ingredients in contrast that when you put them together are going to describe for us what we know to be the fruit of the Spirit. It's all in the context of what he tells us in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, Paul, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul's writing to Christians. He's writing to churches in Galatia. He is writing to uh, people that are followers of Jesus, which is so helpful for us to remember, because the works of the flesh— and the fruit of the Spirit are present both in a follower of Jesus. So there are all of us that are in this room have a battle that is going on and a battle that seeks to conquer us, and that battle is a battle against our flesh. Now, don't think flesh like your skin. Don't think that Paul is demonizing your body. That's not what Paul is saying here. The word sarks in the original language in the New Testament is a word in flesh that means our sinful nature. And it also means the volitional choices that we make that are sinful, that pull at us, the the world in which we live in that conforms us into its image. This is the work of the flesh, our propensity. As the great hymn writer said, we are prone to what? Wander. We are prone to wander. And we're prone to wander because within all of us as believers, there is this battle between the way of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Now, how do we know that the works of the flesh is something that is creeping into our everyday life? Well, Paul says, let me give you 15 ingredients here. 15 ingredients that will allow you to see that the, uh, the way of the flesh is what you are giving yourself to here. And he starts with that listing in verse 19. Look with me in your copy of God's Word. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Paul is saying, hey, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes here. This is is something that everybody can understand, is what Paul is saying here. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I could just keep on going. It isn't that these 15 are comprehensive. It isn't that these 15 are the only ingredients that ultimately come to the recipe of the works of the flesh. No, Paul says, well, you get it. If I'm just going to name a few, this is what comes on. But I could go on and on. Things like these, I warn you, Paul says, back to our passage, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are three ways that we can take these 15 ingredients and see broad groupings, broad headings that help us to ascertain what the works of the flesh look like in your life and in my life. And they're, they're all under uh, things that are good that have gone awry. Pleasure's gone awry, religion gone awry, and relationships gone awry. Look with me at pleasures gone awry. And these 15 ingredients that are listed here, under this heading, you can think of what Paul says when he says sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and orgies. This is the good gifts of God for human reproduction, the good gift of God of sexuality between a man and a woman, Genesis 1, Genesis 2 here, that when it flows over its banks, the good gift becomes polluted and perverted. And when it flows over its banks, it is pleasure that has gone awry. Paul says, when you see this, it is not the way of the Spirit, but it is the works of the flesh. 
Notice also he gives us a description of religion gone awry. That idolatry and sorcery, idolatry being when we take good things given to us by God and make them ultimate things in our life. When we take family, which is a good gift, and we put family at the center of our life, what is a good gift becomes an ultimate gift, and we end up idolizing our family. We take work, a good gift of God, not a part of the fall. Our relationship to work is a part of the fall, but uh, God gives responsibility to Adam to, to tend the garden, gives responsibility to Adam at the outset of creation to name the animals. So work is a good gift, but when we place work in the wrong place and we put that at the center of our life, it becomes an idol and that good gift becomes an ultimate gift. And then when we're laid off or when we're not able to work, we have no identity. We don't know who we are. But who we are is never intended to be solely seen in our work, as good of a gift as that is. So you see religion gone awry. You see in this passage here, you see relationships also gone awry. Notice that Paul gives the most attention to interpersonal relationships and how those interpersonal relationships can go astray and go awry. Notice that he listens, lists eight examples, he says, Enmity can occur, and strife can occur, and jealousy can occur, occur, and fits of anger, and rivalries, and dissensions, and divisions, and envy. What Paul is saying here is that there is a vertical aspect of our sinful life, that we sin against God, but we never sin in isolation. That there's always a, a ripple effect. So when we're living in the works of the flesh, it is going to ripple out to those that are closest to us. It's going to ripple out to our family members. It's going to ripple out to our coworkers, And it's going to ripple out to those that we just, frankly, put up with. And it's important for you to be able to see that when you look at these 15 ingredients, which Paul says, I could go on and on and on, such things as these, that it describes for us the scope of the works of the flesh. Now, what do I mean by that? There is an instinct to look through these, these 15 ingredients and to maximize what isn't present in your pantry and to minimize what is present. That especially when we hear this listing in the context of pews on Sunday morning, there can be a temptation to say, I am really, really glad that my son or daughter is here to hear this today. I am really, really glad that my husband or my wife is here to hear this today. I'm really, really glad that my mom or dad is here to hear this today. I'm really, really glad, and you're thinking outward, outward, outward. But understand that Paul gives us the scope of the works of the flesh. So there are none of us here in this room that have a pantry that is bare of the works of the flesh. Paul talks about the scopes of the works of the flesh that are going to be present in all of our lives. All of us must be intentional and we must open up through the power of the Holy Spirit the recesses of those dark places and confess anew and afresh those aspects of our life that are not pleasing to the Lord. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we will only see this list through those things that do not so easily entangle us. But Paul says, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
Quit trying to inspect everyone else's pantry and allow the Holy Spirit to shine light into the recesses of your soul. Notice with me the scope of the works of the flesh. Notice with me the deadly nature of the works of the flesh. If you're reading this passage and you come to verse 21, if you're a follower of Jesus and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you're, you're considering the claims of Christianity, verse 21 should be a helpful diagnostic passage. It should not be a passage that leads to confusion, especially in the context of everything else that Paul has said, but we need to ponder this passage lest we be confused by it. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before that those who do such things, what are those such things? Well, these 15 things that I've described here of the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. I vividly remember a classmate of mine when I was in 10th grade or 11th grade coming to me and said, David, um, I want to talk to you about a biblical passage. Out of all the biblical passages that we could have talked about, the last one I would think we would be talking about, but I remember it was this passage. And the question that he had about that passage and why in the world he thought, I as a 10th grader would know anything about that, I didn't know either. I mean, it's the blind leading the blind. I mean, but, but we prayed together and we were looking at this passage together and putting question marks behind it and beside it right there. And in that context, it's important for you to see what this passage says and what it doesn't say. All of our Bibles are translations of the original language of Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. And in this passage right here, it's important for you to see this essential phrase that says, those who do such things. One way to translate this passage, which is, I think, more clarifying, and you see it if you're, if you're reading out of an English Standard Version, at the end of that phrase, if you just see it in your Bible, there's actually a footnote. And do you see if you go at the bottom of your page, do you see what an alternative translation is? Those who make a practice of doing such things. So Paul is not saying, hey, if there's ever been envy in your life, there's no way that you can be a follower of Jesus. Paul's not saying, if there's ever been anger and dissension in your life, there's no way you can be a follower of Jesus. He's not saying, if there's ever been sexual immorality in your life, there's no way that you can be a follower of Jesus. But there is a big difference between being a follower of Jesus who ultimately makes a practice of doing these things. Paul says, if it is a part of your ongoing practice, it is either an indication that you're outside of God's will for your life or you're not a follower of Jesus. So there are diagnostic questions to be able to be asked here. Are these descriptions defining practices of my life? Am I being consumed by these descriptions? If you were to just write out what I regularly exist in and, and what is around me, are, are these descriptors at the top of that list? It very well may be that you are a follower of God who is outside of the will of God, or it very well may be that the seed of salvation has never been planted in your heart. And so these diagnostic questions help us look inside of our life. And Paul is saying here, again, I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, he's saying, beware. Stop. I don't want to give any of you false assurance here. If these things are here, Paul is saying, we need to look in our heart and we need to confess or we need to trust in Jesus. And this is good news. I, 
I don't know how many of you spend any time at Oak Mountain State Park. It's, it's a great, you know, from, from this area here, 15-minute drive, 20-minute drive, and you can spend the day on these wonderful trails. You can bike those trails. You can hike those trails. You can run those trails. I mean, it is, it's just a, a playground of God's creation of miles and miles and miles of some of the most beautiful views in this part of Alabama. One of the things that's unique about these trails is they, they have these markers color-coded of what trail you're on, and it's a reminder as you go from this place to this place that you're still on the trail. But they're also they're, they're places where there are turns and there are twists in the trails, and so you'll see these signs that say, Beware. You are traveling off the trail. I mean, it's just this big sign that's before you in, in strategic parts of the trail where people would go off the trail, off the beaten path, off what has been uh, uh, carved out in the midst of nature. And so they know that people will go off these trails if they're left to their own devices. And so Paul is saying with this list that you might be a follower of Jesus that needs to hear, beware, you're traveling off the trail. Beware, you're traveling off the trail of God's will for your life. Beware, you are not a follower of Jesus. And the consequences of that are deadly consequences because there's spiritual separation from a holy God. And here's the good news for any and every one of us who are followers of Jesus, who have traveled off God's beaten path for our lives, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You, you know how God does not receive your confession? He doesn't receive it like this. Seriously? I, I, I was wondering how long you were going to try to hide this from me. I was waiting on you. I, I thought maybe a year ago I'd have gotten your attention. I thought two years ago. I'd, you know the picture of God the Father waiting for his prodigal son to come home from a foreign land is a picture for you to have in your mind when you are prone to wander and you've gone off the beaten trail of God's path for your life. That he meets you in forgiveness. He embraces you in his intimacy. So for you that are here that is far from home, for you that is here that have gone off his trail. And there's a lot of I'm sorry's. And there's a lot of chaos and disorder. You, no matter how far you've traveled, you're not too far from coming home to his grace, coming home to his forgiveness. So come home. Come home, follower of Jesus, living in your flesh. Come home, come home, you who have never trusted Jesus. Turn to him for forgiveness, and you, you will be saved. Notice in contrast to the works of the flesh, these ingredients that have a stench about them are compared in this positive way here to what is most familiar to us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, which is what we know to be the fruit of the Spirit. And do you see the ingredients here? There are nine of them. Three sets, orderly, three, 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 
The fruit of the Spirit is love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience and it's kindness and it's goodness and it's faithfulness and it's gentleness and it's self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So in contrast to the works of the flesh is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not works of the Spirit. It's not Paul saying, try to be better and do better. Notice it's fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. It's not a produce line that you could say at a grocery store, I'm in the mood for some mandarin oranges, but I really am not in the mood for bananas. It's not you going and saying, I'm sort of in the mood for gentleness, but I'm not really in the mood for self-control. I'm not, you know, it it prevents the, uh, the trite observation that I'm just not a gentle person. I'm not, I've never been a patient person. Well, guess what? God's work in us wants to do what we in our natural self cannot do and will not do. So God wants to transform us. He wants to define us by his nature. Notice the defining nature of the Spirit's work. Notice also the transforming nature of the Spirit's work in a believer. In verse 24 of chapter 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I think the fruit of the Spirit can be so misunderstood in so many ways, especially in our tendency to read this as a to-do list. So we go home from church and we say, you know, I've been fairly impatient. So this week, I'm going to be more patient. Did you last week wake up and say, today I'm going to be really impatient with my children. Did did you go to work and say, my goal for today is to be fairly grouchy? I know some of you might have, but I don't, you know, I got a whole nother sermon for those of you that do that right there. That's not, not, but we we don't wake up and say, you know, I'm going to be impatient. Nor do we wake up and set a goal and say, I'm going to be patient. We need the fruit of the Spirit. So when we're backed into corners, actually what's inside of us comes out of us. So when impatience shows up, when a lack of self-control shows up, it isn't because we've made a volitional choice in that moment to choose impatience. No, it's because we've been walking in the flesh and it shows up in that moment. And so when we are pressed, when we're in a corner, When we're in those tense situations, what comes out? I pray it's the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. Why? Because the Spirit of God is inside of us. And I don't know much about fruit trees. I don't have apple trees in my backyard. I'm not a horticulturist. I don't, I don't, that's not my hobby, but I know enough about it that, that you, you need to plant a tree where there are not obstructions to the root system. You need to have a tree where there's water and there's sunlight, and when there's that nourishment upon that tree, it produces a ripe harvest. But it isn't you as the one that's planted that tree going out and say, tree grow, tree grow, tree grow, tree grow. No. It is the nourishment of the waters, the nourishment of the sunlight, and so it is in your life and in my life. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do 
nothing. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So my question to you is, are you abiding deeply in the sunlight of God's word? Are you abiding deeply in communion with God in and through prayer? And as you do that, God, through his spirit, begins to work a work inside of you that shows up outside of you to those that you work with and those that you are closest to. This last week was Halloween. We, uh, our boys dressed up, and they went and got candy and did all of that. And they're older now, so they're off in groups with their friends and different parts going and doing this. But one of the things that hit me as we took some pictures of our boys was that those pictures went into a larger kind of Google Photos thing, and it showed up on my phone a time hop, uh, just sort of where we could see. You know what I'm talking about. You could see before your eyes what they dressed up as two years ago and four years ago and six years ago, and you just saw Halloween throughout the years of the Eldridge boys. And I saw, I saw the different things that they dressed up as. I saw that when my oldest son was three years old, that he dressed up as a UPS person. You know why? Because Amazon delivered so much to my house that he got to know the UPS man by name when I was doing my doctoral study. So he, there he was as a UPS man. But, but you know what I saw, though? I saw just how much they had grown up from year to year to year. Somebody told me early on when we started having kids that the, the days go by slowly and the years go by fast. And the days at times have gone by slowly, but boy, the years have gone by fast. One of the things my uh, oldest son does now is he comes up behind me. And he butts the back of his head against the back of my head. He does his hand like this. And he says, Dad, I'm taller than you. I'm taller than you. And he is. It's not the shoes that he's wearing. It's not the shoes that I'm wearing. I've been eclipsed by my oldest son. He is taller. I always remind him that before we had kids, I was six foot two. And now I'm five foot ten. It's the stress a parenting that has shrunk me over the years, but I always remind him, son, you might be taller than me, but I can still take you. I can still take you. The bad thing is, is when I come back one Sunday morning and say, I, I can't take him, I can't take him, but, but we never, we never set our kids down when they're really young and said, I need y'all to try to grow. Like, like, come on, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to think, I'm going to grow. I'm going to grow. We, we never did that. We never hooked them up in this sort of medieval torture chamber and pulled their limbs apart. We never did that. They've eaten us out of house and home, and they have just, they've just grown. You know what I'm talking about? They've just grown. It's just natural for boys to grow. Sometimes when we talk about Christian growth, we talk about it in wholly exceptional ways. But I want you to hear that when you abide deeply with God, when you're connected to the nourishment of prayer and the word, it is natural for you to grow. He wants you to grow in love and in joy and in peace and in patience 
and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness, the fruit of the Spirit He wants to produce in you. So here's some questions to take with you as we leave this morning. Am I stunting my spiritual growth with unconfessed sin? In the pantry of my soul, are there works of the flesh that need to be confessed Am I abiding deeply with God in and through His Word? Am I committed to to engage His Word, to listen to His Word, to obey His Word? Am I communing with God in prayer? You know what happens? You, my friend, you grow. You grow because the Spirit of God wants you to look more like the image of the Son. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to this moment where we thank you for the Spirit of God that dwells in us. We thank you that the fruit of the Spirit is not a byproduct of us trying hard or being better, but is a byproduct of us abiding deeply in you. And the nourishment of prayer, the nourishment of your word does a work in our heart. I pray for each and every one of us that have elements, elements of the ingredients of the work of the flesh that we need to give anew and afresh to you in confession today. I pray that we would confess our sins and we would feel the cleansing work of your spirit in our life. Lord, let us see sin for what it is. It separates us from you, a holy God. It's what our Savior was brutally crucified for. It's it's nothing for us to trifle at. It's nothing for us to to explain away. It is is a, a, a stench to it. So let us look inside of our hearts, look inside of our souls, and to confess anew and afresh. Let us rest in the growth that you want to produce in each and every one of us through the work of your Spirit in us. May today be a day that we don't go home saying, I'm going to do better, I'm going to be better. But may we abide in a deep way with you this week. And may your fruit grow in all of us. So we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.